The House This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping the show independent and free of advertising. As the sun rises over the mist-laden mountains, we see for the first time the beautiful panorama of the fabulous city of Hollywood, mecca of the motion picture industry. With its myriad of homes dotted hither and yon in the hilltops, its busy thoroughfares, its happy throngs of citizens rushing here and there. And in the dancing sunbeams, we notice the architectural splendor of Hollywood that befits such a glamorous metropolis. Yes, even the buildings have a personality all their own as witnessed the oriental magnitude of the Chinese theater, with its pagodas and gracious figurines bedecking the contour of the structure. Hollywood broadcasting studios, where millions of Americans listen nightly to the star-studded programs that emanate from these modernistic radio emporiums. Welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. In 1984, only one movie of the top 30 grossing films of that year was a sequel. One out of 30. In 2015, 15 of the top 30 grossing films, including four of the top five grossing films, were either a direct sequel, a remake, or a reboot. Many have said that Hollywood has run out of ideas, that they have nothing original to offer. Well, the reality is much, much different, and I wanted to find out how do we get to this point. In this multi-part series called The Business of Film, we'll look at how the Hollywood landscape has changed over the past 30 years. In this episode, we will look at the 1980s, what many would describe as the last gasp of the old Hollywood model. We will discuss everything from the film and marketing budgets back then to the impact that just a couple of established film reviewers could have on a movie and its filmmaker. I am joined by writer-director Phil Giovanno. Phil got his start in the industry back in the 1980s after his student film, Last Chance Dance, was viewed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg offered Phil a chance to direct an episode of the Spielberg-produced anthology series, Amazing Stories. Phil jumped at the opportunity and never looked back. Phil would go on to direct such notable films as Three O'Clock High, U2 Rattle and Hum, State of Grace, Final Analysis, Entropy, Gridiron Gang, and many of U2's most famous music videos. Phil's latest film, The Veil, starring Thomas Jane and Jessica Alba, is currently streaming on Netflix now. Phil, Juana, welcome back to How Is This Movie? It's a pleasure to have you back on. How is everything today? Great, Dana. Thank you so much for having me back. Excellent. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask you, uh, recently, The Veil was released video on demand, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on on the the film so far and and its release and and so on. Well, you know, it's very strange. Uh, You know, this is my first time really uh, going through the video on demand process, and I have no idea 
how the uh, film is doing or how it's really being perceived. I mean, you get, you know, you get various internet reviews and things like that, but it isn't quite the same as, um, you know, when you, when you have a theatrical release, there's at least, um, you know, there's certain ways, obviously box office is one way. And then, you know, kind of nationwide reviews and things like that. And, and there tends to be more feedback from even a, a smaller theatrical release than ends up, and then it ends up you have on on VOD. So it's really weird. It's like you, you finish up the movie and it goes out there and that's it. You really, you know, it's funny. I had dinner with my editor a couple nights ago and he, he was like, anyone ever say anything to you or you hear anything? I said, nope, not really. He goes, did you ever hear Blumhouse, Universal, any feedback? I said, nope. And he's like, huh. I go, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. For all I know, you know. 6,000 people have watched it or 6 million people have watched it. I mean, you just have no way of knowing. So it's, it's very, it's very odd. It's completely different from when, from how you started out, correct? Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Very, very different. I mean, you know, particularly under the, the, the microscope of being a, 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 well, however you, if you'd like to put it as they did a Spielberg protege, um, I always thought that was kind of a funny phrase, but anyway, that's what they called me. And uh, so, yeah, being under be under that kind of scrutiny uh, on three o'clock high, or even even Santa eighty five and the doll, my amazing story shows. I mean, there was a lot. There were you know there there was uh, a lot of attention, and because of my story. And um, but yeah, now it's kind of like you know if, if if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? And in the case of VOD, I have no idea. <laughs> I find that incredibly interesting and it really what you're just talking about is really inspired me to do this episode which is entitled The Business of Film and the objective for this episode is to really gain a better understanding of what it takes to get a film from the script to the screen mm. and I really want to focus on the process and how it's changed over the past 30 years. So I'd like to start in the 1980s when you got your start. And my first question for you in the 1980s is the studio system back then is far different from what it is now. And who was calling the shots back then? Well, you know, from my perspective, which is, you know, just one guy in that era, but, you know, I think the the general feeling would have been that you had the heads of studios, um, literally, you know, like in my case, it was Sid Sheinberg over at Universal. And the same, the same guy that Steven Spielberg had. Sid Sheinberg was the guy that gave Steven Spielberg Jaws and gave him his start in television as well. And you had a head of a studio and that's who you answered to. You literally um, had a guy or a gal and that would be, you know, who you talk to and, and they would green light movies. Um, yeah, they had a staff of people who would, you know, vet the scripts and develop and do all those things. But at the end of the day, you had, you know, they used to say, you know, who could green light a movie? Who had green light capability? And, you know, it was the head of a studio. Um, for instance, at Warner Brothers, when I did Final Analysis, uh, you know, that's that started shooting in 1991. That that was Terry Semmel. And, um, you know, when when I did State of Grace in, in 89, um, that was uh, Mike Metavoy. And at Orion. And and so you, you know, you you went in and had a meeting with Mike Metavoy. And if Mike Metavoy said, we're making it, you went and made the movie. If you had a meeting with Sid Scheinberg and Sid Scheinberg said, we're making it, you made the movie. So you did have individuals who truly could call the shots with very little um, kind of external scrutiny or influence. Remember, these companies, these studios were standalone corporations, they their, their only purpose was to make movies. 
you know, Warner Brothers made movies. They had a television division, uh, Universal had a television division, but essentially they made filmed entertainment. That's a better way of putting it. These studios were there to make filmed entertainment, but all that changed. What kind of job security did the studio heads have in the 1980s? I mean, you mentioned Sid Sheinberg. He is <laughs> probably one of the most famous studio heads of his era. Yeah. So I'm just wondering uh, if a studio released, for lack of a better term, flop after flop after flop, what kind of job security would they have? You know, much more than, than you would now. Um, you know, you, you just didn't have stockholders that you had the answer to. You know, you weren't a publicly traded company. You weren't, uh, you know, under under the pressure of uh, corporate governance either, meaning that, that once these companies got purchased, you know, remember the, you know, Time bought uh, Warner, became Time Warner. Um, Sony bought Columbia Pictures and TriStar. Um, you know, Viacom bought Paramount. And this was all in the early 90s, pretty much. And, uh, you know, Matsuhisa was the one that they, they sold Universal to. So suddenly you had, you were, you had these, these film companies that became parts of a giant corporation, you know, whether it be an electronics company or, you know, other, other conglomerates. Uh, and they had to answer to people that were above them, to CEOs that were above them on a corporate level, as well as a board of directors. And so your results, your, your yearly financial results – uh, your income, your revenue was being scrutinized on a yearly basis once you were part of a, a of a corporation, uh, a parent corporation, versus when you had people like Sid Sheinberg on their own, you know, he answered to Lou Wasserman. And Lou Wasserman and him had a relationship going 20-something, 30-something years. Lou was there. Lou created Universal, yeah. MCA Universal. Lou Wasserman is not a name as well known as Louis B. Mayer or Jack Warner but was probably the most important figure in how the movies developed and changed. Things he did were remarkable in terms of what MCA Universal was and became. He had this reputation of being bigger than man. He changed the way the movie business operated. I was fortunate. I was always ahead of the pack. Wasserman was born in Cleveland in 1913, very poor. He eventually drifted toward a very interesting man in Chicago named Jules Stein, who formed a company called MCA, Music Corporation of America, which was booking dance bands out of Chicago. And eventually, Lou Wasserman impressed Jules Stein. MCA decided to hire him. Initially, he becomes an agent for musicians, and he does so well that Jules Stein asks him to move to Los Angeles in 1936 and he becomes the leading agent and he signs up some of the biggest stars in Hollywood and by 1946 he becomes the president of uh, MCA. But for the most part agents didn't play a big role in Hollywood because the studios ran everything. Stars, the directors, the writers, they're all in a contract. But that began to change after World War II. The big moment comes in 1950. Lou Wasserman negotiates a precedent-setting deal for Jimmy Stewart to appear in Winchester 73. And so Jimmy Stewart becomes the first movie star to get points. He takes a lower salary in exchange for a percentage of the gross business the movie does. Well, once Wasserman is able to negotiate that, all the other stars want that. That was the 
sledgehammer that really began to knock the, door, the walls down of the studios. Stars could now have the ascendancy. I was lucky enough when I was <laughs> starting out, I had lunch with Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg all by myself in the commissary. I mean, it, it's kind of a, you know, for, for people that know of that era, it was a, like, it was like having uh, lunch with Louis B. Mayer or Jack Warner. You know, you were you were with one of the godfathers of the modern studio system. I mean, Lou Wasserman was considered the most powerful man in Hollywood for about, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 year run, maybe longer. And and Sid was his guy. So he was safe. These guys had long, powerful tenures. But then, uh, like I've said, as, as corporations took over the studios and saw them as commerce and saw them as a piece of revenue, a revenue stream, if you will, that changed and really the performance became pretty much 100% about the money as opposed to, you know, look, we're going to make some movies here that we're proud of and we also want to make movies that, that are hits, but we aren't always swinging for the fences. Okay. Talking about money just for a moment, from what you can recall, what was the average cost of a theatrical release in the 1980s? And I'll couple that question with the marketing costs surrounding a release in the 1980s. I actually went back and did a little research on that, Dana, <laughs> because I, I, I thought I, could, I, I had it off the top of my head, but I because I, I thought this might come up in our conversation and I, I wanted to be sure of it. But yeah, the, the, the average budget in the late 80s was about $28 million. So, you know, and that's of a major studio release, obviously. And the marketing costs were 15 to $20 million. Is that on top of the the twenty eight the average twenty eight million dollars? Okay, yes, on top of it. So you know, what are you looking at? You know, thirty eight, forty three million on. You know, your kind of you know summer movie, your your summer tentpole movie um, in the late eighties. Um, and I can I can you know in I made final analysis in again nineteen ninety one. And that was a $32 million movie, which was the second most expensive movie Warner's made that year um, after after the uh, Batman sequel that Tim Burton was doing at the same time. So um, we were we were second only to Batman at $32 million, which now let's that contrast that today. $32 million movie is of no interest to a studio, pretty much. They just, it, to them, it's, it's, it's kind of neither here nor there. It won't be, you know, it's kind of too small to make its money back. And, and, and it's uh, not big enough to, you know, create a splash. The, the average cost now of a studio movie without marketing is $120 million of a major studio release. Without marketing. That's Correct. Important. And worldwide... Worldwide for a big, you know, sort of temple. Say, say, let's for instance coming out soon. You've got Batman versus Superman, two hundred million plus to market. You've got now, you know, three hundred and twenty million dollars for a major studio release going out the door. And of course, that changes everything about your decision making when it comes time to greenlight a movie. I, I mean, I don't even know where to go with that. Like, that, no, those no, the numbers are astounding. I mean. I mean, and again, this is, you can see this on the internet. I mean, Batman versus Superman supposedly cost $250 million to produce. Okay. <laughs> $250 million. Now, you know, whereas my, my little, this little horror film that I did was $4 million. And yet, they're both, you know, approximately two hours of filmed entertainment at the end of the day. And the ticket price, the say if the veil was in theaters, which is not, but say it was, 
would be the same price as Batman versus Superman. It's crazy. It's so weird. Just the idea that you're getting, you know, that these companies are, are, are making, I know we talked about this in a, in a prior conversation, but it just blows my mind that you pay the same ticket price for a $250 million movie that you would for a $5 million movie. There's no other business like it. It's you know what the only thing I can compare it to is something locally. I live about forty minutes from Orlando. There's Universal Studios. There's Disney World. There's Sea World. Okay, it's a hundred bucks to get into those places. Uh, you know, a few miles from those big theme parks is sort of what we call the off off theme parks. Yeah, these are the go kart tracks, the right, right, you know right. the bungee jumping and all that stuff. And you can pay twenty five dollars and ride go karts for you know for three hours. But could you imagine if you paid twenty five dollars for this go kart theme park in Orlando, and then you drove down the road and paid twenty five dollars to get into it, Universal? Exactly, Dana. Exactly. It and yet. I'm not sitting here advocating that they should charge, you know, $50 to go see Batman versus Superman. But I do think that, and again, our conversation will, will probably center a lot around this because it's it's all about the money. And, you know, you want to do like some boring economic seminar here. But at the end of the day, when you have costs skyrocketing, but you keep your prices static, that really presents a problem. Let's go back to the 80s yeah. just for a second here yeah. because sure, of course. talking about marketing for a moment here, or how did the studio handle the actual marketing for one of these theatrical releases in the 1980s? Well, it was really, you know, it was pretty straight ahead. You, you know, you had your trailer and, you know, now you got to remember there was no internet. So you had your trailer that went out. And that was a big, big deal. Like how many theaters your trailer got into, you know, so, oh, you know, we're in you know, 5,000 theaters, the trailer's in there, and what movie your trailer's attached to, meaning your trailer is actually connected to certain films, so it's going to get shown with those films was a big deal. And that was an indicator of how excited the studio was, depending on how they, what they attached your trailer to. You know, so if they, if they would put your trailer in front of Batman, you'd know, ooh, they're excited about your movie because they're using that spot to promote you. Then, you know, they would cut down those trailers into 30-second commercials. And then it was network TV, straight up, you know, the big the big three, and then ultimately Fox, the big four, uh, network. And even some radio and billboards. And remember, the way you found out how a movie was playing was in the newspaper. You opened up a newspaper, and I remember the big deal was, did you get a full-page ad? Did you get a full-page ad in the LA Times? Did you get a full-page ad in the New York Times? And, you know, all the other major metropolitan cities, if you had a full page ad, that meant you were a big movie. If you had a half page ad, that meant, ooh, your movie's only okay. And God forbid you had a quarter page ad, then you knew they were dumping you. So a full page ad was a big, big deal. Think about that now. How, how silly that even sounds. The idea of like judging the scale of your marketing campaign on a full page ad in the LA Times or the New York Times. It's with all due respect to those publications, it's meaningless. <laughs> meaningless. But back then, I literally, I mean, I remember I took a picture of the full page ad in the New York Times of State of Grace. Because I was so proud that I got a full page ad. There, I just gave you the marketing. That was it. You know, that's it. You trailer, commercial, and full page ads. There's something else I also want to talk about with the 1980s, which is vastly different than what we're experiencing right now. And that was the lack of sequels. There were mm-hmm. not a lot of sequels in the 80s. I mean, you had, you know, 77, you had Star Wars, 80, you had... I was surprised to learn that Lucas had trouble securing the money to get Empire Strikes Back made. It was the... To, to, this was the, the biggest movie of all time. And it's occurred to me that 
sequels were not guaranteed box office gold back in the 1980s, or at least the studios felt that way. No. In fact, the sequel was kind of seen as an embarrassment. You know, you, you know, if you couldn't come up with anything else, you made a sequel. And, and it really was, and again, this is kind of the, the 70s, but the first film to break through the stigma, the sequel stigma, and it's, you know, really up through the 80s and even the 90s to some degree, making a sequel was embarrassing. Like a, a good example would be, look what happened with Jaws, right? So here you have a classic and they make a series of sequels, each one getting worse and worse and worse, each one more and more with all, you know, I mean, more and more embarrassing. I, you know, I, I don't like to, to bag on people that do their best, but still that's what happened with the Jaws series. Instinctively, man has always been drawn to the sea. It's beauty, it's mystery, it's secrets. But there is also a vague uncertainty, a sense of intrusion into an alien world, where man is unwelcome and completely at the mercy of the most terrifying predator on Earth. Man's deepest fear has risen again. Jaws, the revenge. This time, it's personal. Whereas, imagine now, if someone made Jaws, what they would do with it. It would get bigger. The, uh, the odds are that Spielberg would have made the second one. Possibly the third one, you know, but maybe not Spielberg. I mean, he did the, he did the second Jurassic Park and then dropped out. But but still, you would have you know Jim Cameron's going to see those avatars through, right? It just keeps going. I mean, look at look at Michael Bay. He's stuck with uh, Transformers. So Jaws would have been the Transformers. They'd have figured out how to get that Jaws on get that shark on land and have it attack New York City if they had to, right? I mean, you'd figure it out. So you would never leave that money on the table today. You know, you went downhill when you did sequels. They did them for less money. They weren't as good. They were seen as second class, third class, fourth class when you made sequels. Um, Godfather 2 was always like, well, again, that's the anomaly. That's the anomaly. Godfather 2. But that all changed. Just if I can go off off subject here just for a second because we're talking – well, not really. We're talking about sequels. But – can you recall, because you were at Universal at the time, mm. what kind of marketing they put behind Jaws the Revenge? I just want to know, because Jaws is my all-time favorite movie. I'm just kind of curious if, if you know, I, I remember, you know, being a kid, seeing the TV ads and TV spots for Jaws the Revenge. I just remember, was there much excitement for this film when it was coming out? I think like, you'd call it more curiosity. You know, I think it was kind of like, well, what are they going to do now? They blew up the shark, you know, at the end of the first one. So... Out of the gate, we all were kind of thinking, how can you, what, does it have a, you know, does it have a, did it have a baby? Did it have a brother, a sister, a mother? Like, what, what, how can you have another shark like that? And so right away, the whole thing's kind of suspect, right? And so back then, there was no such thing, because what they would have done was the Jaws origin story, right? They would have gone backwards in time. You'd have met the young Quint. You'd have met the younger, right? Or whatever they would have done, or, you know. And, and that was a very clever thing. Everyone came up with a kind of more of a comic book uh, uh, tradition of the origin story, which allowed you to go backwards on stories that it actually ended. 
That hadn't come up yet really as a thing, but that's what they would have done, right? With Jaws back then. But instead they tried to create a continuous story with a, a, a traditional sequel. And it was just out of the gate, kind of like, wow, what are they going to do with this? And they basically threw it out there. It was a, you know, kind of, I think, I, I don't want to call it cynical, but it was kind of a crass money grab. They were just like, whoa, why not? You know, Jaws is a, fran is a franchise name now. It's a brand. It's a thing. So we'll just keep doing Jaws for the heck of it. But they did, you know, it was really just, uh, you know, kind of seen as embarrassing, quite honestly. And I don't think, I think even Universal was, was embarrassed by it. And Steven was embarrassed by it. I mean, he had nothing to do with them. So everything, they all stayed away. You essentially stayed away from a sequel. You, you, you know, filmmakers, actor, like it was not, other than James Bond, other than Bond, and, and, and this was before they really resurrected Bond too. Like Bond was not in its heyday then either. It was still, even the, even the Bond films in that era were kind of embarrassed. Remember when Sean Connery went and did one outside the Bond canon with Kim Basinger and never, what was it? Never Say Never Again. They released Never Say Never Again and Octopussy the same year. There you have it. Yep. So it was, it was really still kind of a mixed up, screwy thing. Like you would never have that now. Never. So, so right. I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, so I think that, that it was really not just sequels were not seen as, as something anyone really wanted to do, but you know, they were kind of for the lower class of filmmaking and, and of course nothing could be further. I mean, it's amazing to me that just that alone is amazing to me how that's changed, how the biggest gig to get today. And what, let's look at it like JJ Abrams and star Wars was the biggest filmmaking gig of the year, the last five years. I mean, who knows how long, right? The amount of, I mean, but at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're essentially doing a sequel, you know? I mean, and you're doing, it's a completely in pre-invented set of characters, pre-invented universe, pre-invented, like George Lucas came up with all that stuff out of his head and, and his fellow collaborators. And now the biggest gig, directorially speaking, is just, taking those players and moving them around and creating a new-ish narrative. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, that's the biggest gig in filmmaking today. Pretty interesting. It is. It is. Let's talk about one other... Well, there's a couple major things that happened in the 1980s, but I think one of the biggest changes to Hollywood in the 1980s would have been the introduction of home video. And what did that mean for the studios as far as... Did they decide that some movies would just go with a home video, wouldn't even get a theatrical release? When, when did that thinking start to take place? I hate to, to date myself and remember back when you could not get a VHS tape. You would watch a movie in a theater, and that's one of the reasons I saw Jaws five times, is because when it was gone, it was gone. And you had to wait until it came on network TV and they chopped it up and put in commercials and, you know, half the movie was gone and it was just, you know, you knew you weren't going to ever see a theatrical version of your film, you know, and back then, maybe ever, or maybe, you know, if they did a re-release of some sort or in a revival theater, I used to go to a lot of revival theaters so I could, I could watch films again. But anyway, when V, when VHS players hit and, and suddenly you could rent movies, it really began to change movie going habits and, and how people thought about the exclusivity of a movie. A movie for, gosh, I don't know what, what 
But for 60 years was an exclusive theatrical experience. You had to go to a theater. And then VHS comes along and wait a second, I can rent that movie, oh, you know, five months later and watch it at home again and again and again whenever I want. Uh, But it was rental, right? The ownership of VHS, those tapes would cost you 70, 80. Sometimes they would charge $100 if you wanted to buy Star Wars, you know, the VHS originally. But then the cost came down and DVD came in and now you could buy a movie and own it for 15, 20 bucks and create a movie library. And that really was the beginning of watching movies at home. And that really, you know, was the beginning of the end of the chokehold that theaters, I think historically speaking, when they look back, they're going to say that was the beginning was when you could create a movie library out of DVDs. And I know even that's now passe and over. Now it's a digital library you create, but still it's the same thing. Your movies are at home and you can watch them on your TV. That changed, you know, the nature of going to the movies. There was another way to watch a movie. And so, you know, that really began to change everybody's thinking. You know, there was another revenue stream. And again, as I said at the outset, it's going to be about money. So there's a revenue stream. So here you are, you're sitting with a movie. Let's say now, you know, by the time home video was really happening, you know, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, right around my, my, my early part of my era. And so what, what the deal is, you say to yourself, well, are we going to spend 30, 40 million dollars to market this? Or can we just get our money back and make a couple, three, four million, maybe even more when it's all said and done? Because we can still sell it to TV. And remember, cable was coming in too at that time. So you had the HBOs and the Showtimes coming in. So you could sell it to cable as well. So you said, wait a second, why? Let's just get our money back. Why risk 70 million? Well, we can get our 25 million back by going straight to video. And and then some very smart entrepreneurs who were just looking at it again from a financial perspective as opposed to any kind of creative perspective said, wait, if we keep the cost down of production, if we keep it below 10, gee, we, we can definitely get our money back out of this. Because you got to remember Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster, who's gone? A Blockbuster video, mom and pop video shops. I mean, they were everywhere, right? I remember in New York City, they were one a block. Every block, there were video stores. Best job I ever had was working at a mom and pop's video store. There you go. There you go. And I just ha- I used to have one in my neighborhood here. It finally closed last year. I used to go in there all the time, had a relationship with the guy. It was awesome. He and I would talk movies. It's over. It's over. Now your relationship is with how many stars it shows on Netflix. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's kind of sad or the or who's writing in the comments, you know? And you know what I mean? It's just the conversation is really changed anyway oh you know i don't want to sit here and sound like well back in my day you know but at the end but it is it's a shame in a way that the you know it drains some of the magic out of it it just is what it is but again this isn't the only uh thing our world is draining magic out of but that's a different podcast (laughs) um so it really changed the thinking from the guys taking the financial risks the risk reward changed and you can either cover your bet or take the big risk and go theatrical. And that's what home video uh, allowed the investors uh, to do, was just to rethink what films deserved to be in a theater. Whereas prior to home video, the only way to get the money back was to go to a theater. You had to go to the theater. You would only shelve a movie if it was like indecipherable. And even then, they try to get something out of it. 
That, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole show right there. <laughs> we can talk about it's that. Amazing, right? I mean, think about it in, in the seventies, like you made a movie, there was no other way you had them in a corner. You know, they, they couldn't say, well, we watched taxi driver. It is a little bit violent. Uh, yeah, a lot of blood, you know, maybe what we ought to do is, uh, you know, we could put that on VOD, or we could uh, take that to DVD, or we can make an exclusive deal with uh, Netflix on that. There were no options. It was release it, get behind it, do your best. Now, you know, they only, I only think they only spent about a million and a half dollars making Taxi Driver, but the point still is, it, it had to be released. There was no other way. I want to talk about the impact that film reviewers had, uh, you know, looking at Roger Ebert and, you know, some Rex Reed and some of these other Gene Shalit. Uh, they really seemed to me to rise to prominence in the, in the 80s. And, and how, what kind of effect did a positive or negative review from one of these film reviewers have on a release? Two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert was huge, huge for a while there. Again, in the 80s and 90s, late 80s and early 90s, they were, Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs up, was a giant piece of marketing. And, and that was very, they were very powerful. And, and they had their TV show, you know, um, which, which eventually I believe Disney bought. I mean, it was, it was like they started out on, on public television, I, I want to say, and then, and then got, went to network. They were a network TV show that we all watched. I tuned in. This is this is pre-TiVo, kids. You know, this is before you could DVR this stuff. Like you had to turn it on when it came on, and you had to sit through the commercials and watch it because that's how, if you loved movies, their opinion mattered. And so, and they would do specials that you know that it was a big deal. So the power of the of the big name critics, particularly the TV critics, or the really well thought of, you know, the Pauline Kales of the world. Um, they, they could really make or break a career. They can make or break a movie and they were courted by the studios and it really mattered. And again, what's so funny, they, they would put it in the commercials. They're, you know, two thumbs up, Cisco and Ebert, you know, they're even Cisco and Ebert eventually developed a graphic of two thumbs up that like meant, you know, it was like a thing. It was something they put on top of your poster as a huge standalone graphic, not some weird, just like little quote, but like the lead was Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs up, because that let the community know it was good and worth seeing. And now, well, I don't even, do I really even need to go into the fact that reviews, and, and, and I, I still think it's a, you know, a, a really, I really respect the film critic and, and what they provide to film history, for film history, for for you know us you know film lovers and and I love I still go I even a lot of times now uh, I really enjoy seeing a film and then going to the reviews after the movie and just kind of getting a consensus of what a bunch of critics and I I really love film criticism actually and always did but the idea that one or two critics would equal the marketing campaign on a movie you can't even it's just not even I don't I don't even it's it's I mean, I'm flummoxed to even think who that would be or how that would be in today's age. You know, so you can just see that the marketing of movies became so much more complex as time went on, and especially with the advent of the Internet. In part two of this discussion, we will look at the 1990s and the rise of independent film. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.